WERU health-related programming is made possible in part by the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, providing comprehensive reproductive and sexual health services for all women of all ages at all stages since 1984. Insurance, main care, Deergo, and self-pay accepted. MabelWadsworth.org. You are listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and on the web at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Healthy Options with Andre Bella. Welcome to Healthy Options, a program focusing on integrative health therapies and public health issues. I'm Andre Bella, your host for today. A reminder that this is a live call-in show, so at the half hour, we'll be opening the phone lines for your calls. The call-in number is 866-625-9378. Today, my guest is Harriet Washington, author of Deadly Monopolies, The Shocking Corporate Takeover of Life Itself and the Consequences for Your Health and Our Medical Future. Welcome, Harriet, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Andre. Um, Harriet A. Washington is also the author of Medical Apartheid, which won a National Book Critics Circle Award, the 2007 Penn Oakland Award, and the 2007 American Library Association Black Caucus Nonfiction Award. She has been a fellow in medical ethics at the Harvard Medical School, a senior research scholar at the National Center for Bioethics at Tuskegee University, a fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health and the recipient of the John S. Knight Fellowship at Stanford University. I, I'd like to begin, uh, if we could, by just reading you a little bit from uh, the book's cover for our listeners. Um, it, it starts like this. Do you think your body is your own to control and dispose of as you wish? Think again, as Harriet Washington reveals in Deadly Monopolies, Human life is rapidly becoming a wholly owned subsidiary of the medical industrial complex. Many hospitals have you sign away ownership rights to your own excised tissues if you undergo surgery and profit from the tissues that have medical and fiscal value. The United States Patent Office has granted at least 40,000 patents on genes and more are pending. This sobering and often shocking book documents the dramatic impact of this thriving biological patent industry on cutting-edge medical research and drug development. What used to be the domain of universities and nonprofit organizations is increasingly dominated by aggressive pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies whose policies and practices are focused not on patients but on profits. Harriet, start us off with a little bit of the history of patents in the United States and what the Founding Fathers possibly had in mind and how these laws have changed. Well, it's very interesting. It's important to realize that what we think of a patent is not exactly what our Founding Fathers knew as a patent. Uh, we think of the patent as an exclusive right um, that, you know, persists for a very long time. Currently, it's 20 years for most patents. Um, however, our founding fathers were very skeptical of patents. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, who was the first chief of the patent office, was um, 
very, very um, opposed to patents. He was in favor of innovation as an inventor and scientist himself. And so were uh, later scientists such as Benjamin Franklin. Um, they were in favor of innovation, but they were not in favor of monopolies. They were skeptical of monopolies. They thought that inventors should make their invention secrets open to the public as a public service. They didn't think that they should profit exclusively from them. Eventually, Thomas Jefferson came around to doing patents a little more openly, but during his entire tenure as the um, person who designated whether patents would be issued or not, he only issued approximately 47 patents. So he was very skeptical of them. His friend James Madison convinced him that they were perhaps a necessary nuisance. Gradually, Americans warmed to the idea of a patent, and gradually we began to see them as key to innovation. Indeed, in 1980, that's how profound changes in the patenting of living things were, were um, affected, because the people who are in favor of them argued that if we broaden patents, if we allowed universities to sell to private industry the patents that they were developing with our tax dollars, that this would mean that more of the innovations would actually go into research laboratories, go through uh, the commercial um, sphere, and actually become the needed medicines, the needed inventions that we need. And in 1980, which was a watershed year, the Bay Dole Act, the nickname of a law that actually eased this, it actually permitted, for the first time, universities to legally sell the products of um, innovation that were funded by our tax dollars industry. Wasn't there opposition initially to that law? And wasn't there, I remember something in the book that a kind of strange way that it actually ended up being passed? Exactly. I was getting to that. It's very interesting. It almost didn't happen. Um, Birch Fine, uh, who along with Bob Dole, was a co-sponsor of the act. He was convinced by um, industry people that this law was needed. Now, of course, it's a boon for industry because they get the benefit of these patents that were developed with other people's money, our money. So they convinced Bridge by that we really needed this. And he lobbied, he, he fought really hard for it. However, when the bill finally went um, to the larger Congress, there were several problems with it. First of all, um, Hyman Rico, the father of the nuclear navy, a very, very popular person, was adamantly opposed to him. He said, if we allow this, if we allow private companies to buy patents um, or, or get licensed patents from universities, we're going to create these ungovernable monopolies. We're going to have corporations owning these things that should not be owned by corporations. They're the property of the American people, and they are important. They are medicines. They are medical innovation. A corporation should not have the say-so about which medicine gets made and which one doesn't. Cover was very influential. So was Senator Russell Long. Senator Russell Long railed to base uh, virtually by staff worst bill I've ever seen in my life. He was opposed to it, and the bill did indeed was defeated. However, by sheer luck, at the end of the year, as Bruce Biden was outgoing, um, there, there needed to be an emergency congressional budgetary session. And by said, I really want to get my bill in there for another chance of passage. Long, of course, could have prevented this. But Long said, um, Bruce Biden is leaving. He had a lot of personal respect for him. And he called Bridge Fine and says, you know, Bridge, take that patent bill. You earned it. So we owe this law to good old boy sentiment. The fact that Russell Long wanted to do a favor 
for his crony. And when Wrong withdrew his opposition, he was very politically powerful, Evans did as well. And this law, the They Don't Act, was passed at the end of December in the last hour of the last congressional budgetary session. It very, very narrowly became law. But it transformed American medical research. It transformed our ability to um, get the medicines we need. It transformed our ability to pay for them. It changed medical research from a community of people who were focused on things other than money to a community of people who now behave as if they're merely a department or an arm of corporations. So where we used to have this uh, collaboration between researchers at universities and so on, how, how did this law actually then change the, the motivation or actually restrict the, the researchers about collaborating with other researchers? When we hold a patent, exclusivity is everything. Uh, the law in this country recently changed in what I think is not a very important way. Um, but basically, you want to be the first person at the patent office to say, I invented this, I want a patent on it. Now, the, co the cooperation, which in the past drove medical researchers, this is the way they worked, uh, two heads are better than one. When you've got these very intelligent people working together as a team, their chances of success, of course, are much greater. But when you have a patented issue, you do not want to collaborate. You can't collaborate. Um, first of all, if you um, are collaborating with somebody, uh, there's always a chance that someone else will get the patent. Universities and private corporations have forbidden co collaboration. What used to be the norm is now very risky behavior. Sometimes it's criminal behavior. I tell the story of two researchers uh, who are former fellows at Harvard Medical School who were actually pursued and jailed because they um, were about to share information with, oh, they were accused of wanting to share information with the Japanese company that Harvard thought was its own intellectual property. So now collaboration is forbidden. It's actually, now when researchers collaborate, it makes the headlines. Because recently, I'm happy to say, some researchers have recognized the value of the old ways, of the old collaborations, and they're striking out with new models in opposition with this corporate model. And one of them is, indeed, um, a Toronto scientist named Elliot Edwards has gotten together a consortium of scientists who are collaborating, trying to um, come up with better treatment for Alzheimer's disease, and they're being successful. But when this happened, it was a big write-up in the New York Times. What an amazing new model. It wasn't new at all. It was the old model, but we see it that when we do, we think of it as unusual. It's the best way for scientists to work. So, as far as what's at stake financially, um, tell us a little bit about the pharmaceutical business and how much money do they actually make? They make more money than anybody else. At least they did until 2006. They were the number one um, industry on the globe, not the country, on the globe until like 2006 when they fell and they fell into the number three position that they've been holding there. Uh, a very conservative estimate by the IMF is $310 billion a year in profits from the pharmaceutical industry. So they make a huge amount of money. And, and However, is this a lot, a lot of this because of the patents? It's almost all because of the patents. Mm -hmm. Patents are extremely profitable to industry because what happens is you have a university at which researchers are doing um, initial research it's funded by our tax dollars, by the government, not by industry. Once they find something that could be useful and marketable, 
they sell and license it to the corporation, which buys it. Now, the initial research has been done. A lot of the heavy lifting has already been done when they buy it, and the corporation only has to focus on how to develop it, um, how to develop it and to maximize their profits on this patent. Um, the, it's interesting, the industry charges very high prices for these medications once they're devised. And their rationale is it costs us so much in research and development that we have to charge high prices or we go out of business. But a very cursory look at their profits show that that's not the case at all. They're making immense profits. It's not a question of going out of business. The other alternative thing they will say is that they often offer is, well, we have to charge these high prices to reimburse R&D and to guarantee that we will have the money in the future to invest in medicines. This is also not true. When um, in my book I analyzed um, their argument, the reports that have been issued by, for example, by Albert DeMasi at Tufts, showing um, how much money they spend on research and development and that every pill, you might have heard of them, every new pill device costs $800 million. But that's not true. It doesn't cost $800 million. The accurate estimates are somewhere between $71 million and $200 million. Not cheap, of course, but not $800 million, which is upward to $2 billion. So these arguments made by the pharmaceutical industry defending their high prices are specious. They actually make a huge amount of money, and um, they charge us a lot for our medications. It's interesting to look abroad that the very same medications are typically much, much cheaper. Mm -hmm. The companies can sell them more cheaply and still make their profits. That's because in other countries, they put a limit on what people can be charged for their drugs, whereas in this country, there aren't any cash. They can charge whatever they like, and this also drives their immense profits. But then do Americans have a choice then uh, about buying their drugs from other companies, uh, other countries? No. No, there are reimportation laws which ban um, Americans from buying drugs abroad. Typically, if you go online or if you travel across the border and buy your medications in Canada, where the medications are much, much cheaper and often were produced in the same factory as the American medications, technically you're breaking the law because Americans are not allowed to do that. Why aren't they allowed to do that? Well, I think it's important to point out that lobbyists for the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, there are many of them. They spend a great deal of money. They don't bother making their case to the American people that they should be able to charge high prices. They go to the lobbyists and convince the lobbyists that their price structures are uh, acceptable. Mm -hmm. They bypass us completely. Nobody elects them, but they have a lot of influence in Congress, unfortunately. I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Healthy Options on WERU, and we're talking with Harriet Washington, author of Deadly Monopolies, The Shocking Corporate Takeover of Life Itself, and the Consequences to Your Health and Our Medical Future. <clears throat> this is a call-in show, and in another 15 minutes, we'll be opening up the phone lines. That number is 866-625-9378. Um, what's, what's the relationship between the pharmaceutical companies and the FDA? And are there some conflicts within that relationship or even within the FDA itself? Well, the relationship between the pharmaceutical industry and the FDA is a very cozy one. Um, Sidney Wolf, who is um, health director of Public Citizen, 
uh, did a confidential survey where he called the medical evaluators of the FDA, the doctors and scientists who decide whether or not a drug is safe and effective and should be um, um, approved and should go on sale. He asked them, you know, what their experiences were, what their views were, and many of them said that they were, um, they felt that they were being pressured to approve drugs that should not be approved. Many of them said that they have evaluated drugs, recommended against your approval, and had the drugs approved anyway. Sometimes they said that, that when they did this, no one even came to them and said, we're going to approve this drug anyway. It would just be approved without even consulting them. And as one doctor who said that said, that never happened in the past. This is a recent development. So what else is a recent development? Uh, another recent development is a change in the pricing structure. Who pays for these evaluations of um, pharmaceutical companies' wares? The companies themselves. They contribute, um, I think it's approximately 40% of the cost of evaluating their own drugs. In my opinion, that's a clear conflict of interest. And I think that has to do with um, the rather facile approval of many drugs. Anyone who reads the papers knows that many of these drugs, they are approved by the FDA, and they're praised as safe and effective only a few years later to be taken off the market after causing horrible side effects, illnesses, and deaths, Resulin, Avandia. I mean, COX-2 inhibitors, all of these were initially praised and approved and then found to be deadly. But what's really interesting is that when I looked into the history of these drugs, I found that initially their FDA medical evaluators did not want to approve them. And the FDA would go over their heads or find someone else to approve them after the initial um, evaluators um, criticized them as dangerous. I call that the Cassandra effect. So here we have a very close relationship between the industry and the FDA, um, FDA being partially funded by the industry to evaluate its products, and a result of drugs going on the market that maim and kill Americans after having initially been decried by their medical evaluators. So we have a serious problem, I think, the relationship between the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry. I contrast this to what I consider the FDA's shining hour in the 1960s when the FDA would not approve thalidomide, despite the fact that Merrill Richardson, which wanted to sell it in the United States, threatened to sue the FDA. The FDA confirmed. Uh, Francis um, Kelsey, an FDA evaluator, said the safety tests weren't performed correctly. This drug could be unsafe, and she was right. The drug caused at least 10,000 um, children around the globe to be born with horrible um, birth defects. But in the United States, only 16 were because the FDA never approved the drug. Um, and then the problem is, how about today? Would the FDA show that kind of independence today? Today, the FDA has approved thalidomide. So Explain I think what they've really approved it for. I find that <laughs> interesting. Well, they approved it for leprosy and um, multiple myeloma, a cancer. So they approved it in the past, in the 50s and 60s, it was approved for um, relatively trivial problems, um, sleeplessness, um, you know, basically insomnia, anxiety in pregnant women. Now they've approved it to fight cancer and leprosy, very serious illnesses that don't have a lot of other treatments, this particular cancer. So, and that, that causes an interesting, I think, um, 
an interesting question because I asked myself, yes, it causes horrible side effects in children. Does that mean that it shouldn't be approved? I, it's not that I don't think it should be approved. I'm concerned that it's approved without um, transparency. Now, because it treats serious illnesses, you can make a case for it in Western countries like the United States, France, Great Britain. You can say, okay, well, it will, it will treat these um, very serious diseases, and now we know about the side effects. We know about the birth effects. So what we can do and what um, countries do is they allow people to take thalidomide, but they warn them. They warn women it causes horrible birth defects. If you take this, you must take two forms of contraception to make sure that you don't become pregnant while you're taking this. Okay, that's good as far as it goes. I think it should go a bit farther because there's evidence that men who take thalidomide may actually um, secrete it in their semen, so um, they should take precautions as well. But um, that you can actually address some of the problems in the West. The problem is the drug is not being tested in the West. The drug is only tested in the third world, countries like Brazil, Nigeria. And in these countries, first of all, people are not adequately warned. They um, often don't read English. In West Africa, the promotional literature that was given out with alitamide called it perfectly safe. It ignored the threat of birth defects. So you have these people in the third world they don't have access to contraceptives. Even a doctor told them, use two contraceptives. Women cannot afford it there. And more importantly, they don't have the social power to negotiate contraceptive use. So it's not an option for them. Also, the pharmaceutical company got around, tried to get around this by saying, well, yes, we know there are risks to people in the third world, but after all, it's being devised for leprosy, which is a problem in the third world. But no. The drug is not meant for the third world. People in the third world cannot afford this drug. They can't afford most Western-branded medications. In fact, Michael Kramer, an economist at Harvard University, did a study, and he determined that for a very long space of time, lasting to 1997, of the 1,300 drugs that were approved by pharmaceutical companies, only four were approved for use in the third world for just tropical diseases. So these drugs are not meant for the people of the third world. We simply use the people there um, to test them. They assume all the risks of testing, but they don't have the benefit of the drug once it's available. That, that also begs the question, how do pharmaceutical uh, companies decide which drugs to develop? And in some of those choices, you know, what are some examples of of making those kinds of choices that do not work to the benefit of eradicating major major diseases like malaria and TB in third world countries? Well, as I said, Kramer has already shown us that um, only four drugs were developed for diseases of people in tropical countries. So they essentially, they largely ignore diseases of the third world. Poor people in the global south and developing countries are not the priority of big pharma. As a matter of fact, um, all of Sub-Saharan Africa and all of Asia, excluding Japan, constitute only 5.1% market for pharmaceuticals. So, so, so if a, a drug they, company had the choice of developing something, I think you had something in the book about sleeping sickness versus what you call a lifestyle drug like Viagra. Uh, exactly. I was about to use the example of, of sleeping yeah. sickness, a very good example. Um, Trypanosomiasis, African sleeping sickness. Um, it's very interesting, a drug named Athornithine. Science Magazine ran a story 
showing that it probably had efficacy against African sleeping sickness. Nobody knew for sure because there weren't any clinical trials being done for this for the reasons I already mentioned. But um, one researcher saw this, and he worked with sleeping sickness uh, patients. He was Belgian, but he regularly flew to Sudan, where he had a clinic with other doctors treating them. And he was very excited about that. He said, we might have a better treatment because the existing treatments for um, African sleeping sickness were, were very dangerous. They were sometimes as bad as having the disease itself. So he's very excited. And Paul Schlechter, the pharmacist who was conducting the clinical trials on eflornithine, this medicine, gave him a sample. Now, what clinical trials were being conducted by Schlechter in Europe? Well, it was being tested against cancer because, of course, they were interested in uses against people in Europe um, and in America and in the developed world, people who had the money to buy a medication once it was perfected. But he gave samples uh, so that these um, African patients could be treated, and it worked so well against sleeping sickness and began um, being called the resurrection drug. It even brought back people who had slipped into their final coma, which no drug had ever done before. So they began calling it the resurrection drug. There's a lot of excitement among doctors who treated these sickness patients, and the pharmaceutical company actually decided to partner with Doctors Without Borders and provide the drug to these people in the developing world, the poor Africans, and to see what would happen. Well, it worked very well and was a very safe drug, very effective drug, but no one could afford it. The people in Sub-Saharan Africa could not afford it, and so the company stopped selling it for that. It withdrew the drug. It no longer made it available. And so aflornithine also turned out not to be effective against cancer in the European trials. However, um, the company did find a use for aflornithine, not sleeping sickness, but full of facial hair in women. Uh, there's a medication called Venucla, which is available by prescription today, $50 a month. And United States and European women can buy it for $50 a tube, $50 a month. And um, it banishes their facial hair. That's what this drug is being used for today, not against sleeping sickness. I think this is a very good illustration of the priorities of pharmaceutical companies. I also point out in the book that if you look at the kind of diseases that are worldwide killers, as you mentioned, malaria, tuberculosis, uh, the medications against these drugs are mostly very old, off-patent, not terribly effectual, have other problems. I mean, um, Disease resistance is a huge problem. I mean, a lot of diseases become resistant to the antibiotics used to treat them. And so um, there is a need for a really crying need for drugs against these new killers, but they're not forthcoming. But we, the other kinds of drugs are forthcoming in the United States. We have had um, a large number of drugs for erectile dysfunction developed since 1996. Erectile dysfunction doesn't kill anybody, although the drugs used to treat it have killed 600 men over the course of the last, you know, decade or so. So um, we actually are spending more time and more effort in developing drugs against lifestyle disorders like erectile dysfunction, um, gastric distress, the kind of disorders that don't kill people, aren't terribly serious, but affect many people and so the corporations can um, earn a great deal of money treating them. That's the, that seems to be the priority. 
Uh, today, I just want to mention that today we're um, having a very fascinating guest, Harriet Washington. She is the author of Deadly Monopolies, uh, The Shocking Corporate Takeover at Le of Life Itself. You're listening to WERU Radio, 89.9 uh, .9 Blue Hill and 99.9 .9 Bangor. Um, we are going to take a break for about a minute and come back, and the phone lines will be open for your questions. That call-in number is 866 Six two five nine three seven eight. So please call us um, at that number, and we'll be back right after the break. Thank you for listening. Healthy Options, and today's guest is Harriet Washington, uh, author of Deadly Monopolies. Um, this is a call-in show. The number is 866-625-9378. I see that we already have um, a caller. Um, do we have the caller there online, Matt? Go ahead, caller. Please, please give us your name. Okay, maybe you can try calling back. I think that might have been someone, someone on a cell phone. Do we have another call? Okay, please call early because sometimes the calls back up. At the end, the number is 866-625-9378. Um, Harriet, I want to get into that issue of the, uh, the harvesting of um, tissues, blood, and, and body parts. If I, let's say I'm in an accident, a car accident, and I'm unconscious, and the ambulance takes me to the hospital. Um, what what rights do I have or not have about a medical facility having access to parts of my body? Well, um, people who, no matter how they gain entry to a hospital, people who are about to undergo surgery in several hospital systems, including the Harvard hospitals, are asked to sign a secret consent forms. We often assume that these uh, forms are necessary for our health and treatment, and they're asking permission to do things that are necessary to cure us, um, either restore us to help or improve our health. But some of those consent forms are not. Some of them are consent forms that we're asked to sign giving the rights to any of our excised tissues or blood to a private corporation. Uh, for example, Duke University and the Harvard Hospitals with a um, private company called Ardias. Ardias dealt with tissues, which it sold um, and used to process, process medically valuable um, products. So that basically, um, I think many people are now familiar with the story of people like Henrietta Lacks, who had her tissues taken from her without her husband's consent um, by Johns Hopkins uh, researchers and um, was never informed of that. Well, what happened to Henrietta Lacks and later to people like John Moore, um, who also had body parts taken from him surreptitiously, 
Uh, it used to happen people who had unusually valuable tissues. They were the ones at risk for this. But today, we're all at risk for it because now value to medical research lies not in only unusual tissues. It lies in many, many copious amounts of normal tissue. And so that's what a lot of these companies are looking for. And that's why they've partnered with medical institutions to be able to gain access to people's tissues when they're taken from them during surgery or during procedures. Now, technically, you can say no, but I've worked in hospitals, and reality is this. Picture this. It's 6 o'clock in the morning. You're about to undergo surgery. You um, have just been woken up. You probably had a sleeping from the night before. You're sleepy. You're groggy. You're nervous. You're frightened, probably. And you've got this medical team handing you forms to sign. These forms tend not to be terribly clear. In fact, some studies have shown that doctors themselves, when handed some of these consent forms, don't always know what they're being asked. Add to that the fact that you don't want to anger your medical team. I mean, it's a reality that a lone sick patient may feel that they don't have much autonomy when um, you know, encircled by a group of medical people asking them to sign things. Add to that that not every surgeon is as careful as he should be about respecting people's rights. Um, I know someone who's had the experience of her job was actually to make sure that surgeons got permission for this. And when she, when she confronted surgeons who had not gotten due permission and said, you don't have a signed consent form here for these tissues you took, um, she get a response like, oh, they'll sign. They hadn't even been asked yet. This is after the fact. Do we, so, we have a caller on the line? Matt, we do, excuse me, we've got one caller on the line. Let's go back to the tissue issue in a, mis in a minute. Can we put that caller on? Caller, are you there? Good morning. Good morning. Okay, you hear me. Okay, good. It's Sydney from Dover Foxcroft. Uh, right on with this uh, personal autonomy and dealing with the medical profession. Uh, they've got you at a disadvantage. I don't want to say that doctors are unethical, but some are. Uh, this is exactly true what you're saying. They have, they have you at a disadvantage. They have you drugged. You're hooked up to uh, IVs and, and uh, monitors and machines. They got you tied down into a bed. And, oh, here, sign this, or we're not going to help you. Uh, it puts us at a disadvantage. And I was, wanted to call to, uh, speaking of the FDA, uh, warning people of, of both genders about surgical mesh. Find out the truth at truthinmedicine.us.com. Uh, uh, the FDA has belatedly, belatedly put out a, a kind of a, uh, a half-baked uh, warning about this stuff. It is an, uh, plastic in certain people. It turns out to be an absolute disaster, and inform yourselves. Thank you. Thank you very much for calling. Um, back, back to that, uh, the consent issue. Um, Harriet, also talk about what happened with the anthrax vaccination uh, in the military with soldiers. One of the things I discussed in the book that has been conducted with little transparency is that although most American people don't realize it, larger and larger groups of Americans are being subjected to medical research without their consent. And this began in earnest in 1990 when the Department of Defense asked for and received a waiver and informed consent that allowed it to force every soldier to accept experimental anthrax um, inoculations. Now, the anthrax vaccine was experimental. Weren't sure it worked, weren't sure it was safe. And yet, soldiers were the only people in the country who could be forced to take it. This went on for 15 years. Finally, a federal judge 
said you cannot use soldiers as guinea pigs in this way. It's unconscionable. It got really ugly after that because after he ordered um, the FDA, after he ordered the, the stop, the FDA quickly, very quickly, without the required public hearings, approved it. Now, what did this mean? Now, it's no longer experimental, technically, but nothing more had, had been done to it. No, we knew no more about it than beforehand, but the FDA made it, approved it, so the Army could continue forcing on to soldiers. Ta so that was only the beginning. Now this actually affects all of us. At one time, it was only soldiers. Now there are changes in the law that mean any one of us can be subjected to research without our knowledge or permission. Talk about that one soldier who objected to the anthrax vaccination. Was it uh, Jamika Barber? Yeah, um, well, she was she was one person I spoke to at length, mm -hmm. and um, her story. I, it's hard to know how typical her story is, but I know it did happen to a lot of people. She had looked into. She and her husband, who were both in the army, were told they had to take these on vaccinations. They looked into it and decided they didn't want to take them because there had been documented cases of um, pregnant women having problems with um, their fetus, losing the fetus, having birth defects. She wanted to get pregnant. She didn't want to risk it. So she tried non-confrontational ways of avoiding. She tried to transfer to another division where she wouldn't need it, but no, she was forced to. She eventually was um, put in a barracks. She was um, court, you know, threatened with court-martial. She was locked down into a barracks, and finally she left the Army because she was headed for a court-martial. She left the Army and was given a dishonorable discharge, and finally, after years of legal um, contests, she won an honorable discharge. But um, her story is typical of many, many soldiers who were forced out of the Army, some of whom were court-martialed and jailed for refusing to take an experimental um, vaccine that no one else was subjected to. We have another caller on the line. Caller, can you go ahead? You there, caller? Go ahead. Hello? Um, sorry, we're having trouble um, hearing you. Can, okay. Can you call yes. back caller on a on a different line? Well, I'm I'm on a landline and my cell no. phone. Okay, go ahead. Um, go ahead. Okay, we I'm hear you now. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. All right, I got away from the phone. Oh, the, all right, I'm interest, inter, interested in what influence the drug companies have on alternative medicines such as vitamins and supplements and. Uh, um, basically, uh, I'm interested in alternative medicine. I'm, I'm not quite clear on what your question was. Um, well, I, uh, the influence you, that the drug companies are having on on, uh, on supplements and vitamins, and and I I understand possibly they're trying to to limit that. And um, um, I'm interested in some of the alternative things to the, re the regular drugs. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, um, you may be right, but I have to say I haven't found, and neither was I, was I particularly looking for, I haven't found hard evidence of this. I would not be surprised, but I can't say. I simply don't know. What I do know is that there are um, eventual companies who are getting into the supplement business who are finding... Um, in some cases, that they're able to market these drugs even without a patent. So, um, and I think you, you might be right that they are trying to um, 
suppress or they try, they are trying to um, reduce market competition from alternatives, but I haven't seen the evidence for it. I guess someone else wants to do that investigation. Good question. Okay. Do we have another caller? Um, I want to I want to spend a, a, a good part of the program, Harriet. Now that now that we've all gotten um, upset about hearing all of these things that seem so out of our control, what are things that we can do? Um, I think you mentioned in the book. I, is it possible to repeal the Buy Dole Act, w and what would that do? Or other suggestions well, that you have? Yeah. I think that that would be a very good step. Um, the, the root of this cause was in the law. The change in the law resulted in a paradigm shift for medical research. You know, after the passage of this law and also the patent, the ability to patent living things, products of nature. Well, after that happened, you had research change from having the patient as a center to the patent as a center. So should, if we were to reverse by Dole, revoke, revoke by Dole so that universities could no longer sell to private companies their patented entities, then remove that um, incentive. Now, of course, corporations, neither corporations nor universities are going to um, probably champion this because they both make a lot of money doing that. But that would be the best thing for the American people because that would permit researchers to work in a way, in a model that is likely to result in, in um, medications we need mm -hmm. and procedures that we need. So I think that's really good, really important. But there are other things that we can do. Yeah. And those are that several lawmakers, uh, Patrick Leahy in New York and um, Xavier Becerra in California, some lawmakers have actually um, written bills, proposed bills, ban gene patents, for example. Now, gene patenting is only one narrow slice of our problems, but it's also another really good step in the direction. So if you live in one of those states, or if you know the lawmakers considering it, then you should certainly try to find out what you can do to support them. And if you don't live in one of those states, then you should go to your lawmaker and let them know that you're concerned about this. Let them know that you would like to see legislation that's based on restoring medical research um, to a model that's likely to help people rather than help companies. Yeah, I... I um, also, uh, that whole idea of the healthcare lobbyists, and, and lobbyists are an issue not just in healthcare, but oh, we do have another caller on the line. C caller, would you like to go ahead? Yes, thank you. Um, I, I'm wondering, um, we'll turn my radio down here, sorry. Um, I'm wondering, um, what is to prevent drug companies from actually creating scarcities, especially in, you know, drugs that are, that are actually... Um, in demand in order to raise prices. Um, there was a recent piece on NPR about this, and um, I only caught like the half of it, but uh, the fact that people are, even in traditional protocols of chemotherapy and whatnot, um, are, having, are having scarcity of, you know, their, their oncologists prescribe drugs and there aren't any others. Does this uh, sort of um, um, play into what you're talking about? Yeah, the scarcity of drugs, the recent scarcity of drugs are very concerning. However, it's a little more complicated than that. It's not as simple as pharmaceutical companies wanting to create the scarcities because if you think about it, um, that would cost them. They make a great deal of money. Don't forget, these companies set whatever price they like for medications. They make a great deal of money doing so. So 
um, a scarcity would actually harm them more than anyone else financially. Um, so it's not as simple as they're setting out to create scarcities. However, I think the scarcities are the unintended consequences of some of the behavior, the profit-seeking behavior of the companies. And again, it's not that they're seeking profits. It's not the problem. That's why they're seeking profits. It's that they seek profits that are unchecked. No one um, establishes ceilings for them. And so they're going to devote their resources to where they think they can make the most money. Um, there have been some isolated cases where hospitals, for example, could not get certain medications because the companies were able to um, repurpose drugs for, um, for a purpose that was more profitable than that which the hospital was using. But that doesn't really apply to these wide shortages. The wide shortages, I think, are symptomatic of the failure of the system, which is not working any longer very well for pharmaceutical companies because their innovation is actually dropping off. They're creating fewer and fewer new drugs. Fifteen years ago, um, there were, you know, scores of drugs being created every year. Uh, the past couple of years, it had been, it's been falling down to about 20 a year. So there, I, I'm not sure exactly what's going on, frankly, but it's a little more complicated than companies willfully um, withholding drugs. Okay. Thank you. And there's also, I noticed that there, and something they mentioned was that there were fewer and fewer generic drug companies because apparently they didn't feel that they were making enough profit. And I don't know if that was related to that as well. Yeah. Um, well, the generic generics uh, dynamic is really interesting. It's different in this country than it is in other countries. In other countries, generic drugs are not that much less, not that much more um, reasonable. They cost almost the same as branded medications abroad. Here they've been cheaper because, of course, um, the generics did not have the market competition. Once the patent had expired, um, they weren't competing directly with the with the patent holder any longer. Um, I'm not I'm not really sure that there are that many fewer companies. I think that they're finding it more difficult to make a profit. And I also know that there have been problems with companies that hold patents resisting. Um, the drug going generic, and they have actually been um, having semi-licit, semi-legal relationships with generics company, where they have made agreements, for example, to delay a drug going generic, even though the patent has expired. They'll make an agreement to the generic company saying, "Well, if you won't sell this drug to the generic for a while, we'll pay you X amount of money. We want to continue profiting from our patent." So. There are some shady goings on here that I don't think anyone has actually fully teased out yet. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to buy your book, definitely. <laughs> Thanks for calling. Thank you. Um, this is a call-in show. The number is 866-625-9378, and we're speaking with Harriet Washington about her book, uh, Deadly Monopolies. Um, I, I want to, that last caller kind of sparked something in my mind. If we as taxpayers uh, pay a great deal of money that goes to these universities for research, um, shouldn't we as taxpayers and through the government have more say about uh, what drugs get made and also about price control? Precisely, precisely. That's a book, that's a point I make in my book repeatedly. Because private corporations, the pharmaceutical corporations say, well, it's our right, 
we're capitalists. We're here to make money. We can charge whatever we want. I'm saying, and we can we can decide to support the drugs we want, and we can sculpt the drugs we want. We hold the patent. That's our right. I say no, because those patents are the product, as you said, of our tax dollars. Our government has, um, it's our government's responsibility to put curbs on these companies. It's not the responsibility to police themselves. I'm not saying that they should uh, willingly reduce their profits. They exist to make profits. You know, it's kind of ridiculous to ask them to do anything that's going to cost them money. But government should has a responsibility to us. We pay, we've paid for this development. We've paid for this innovation. And the government should put some brakes on them and issue consequences. When companies do not pursue drugs that we need very badly and instead give us yet another erectile dysfunction drug or yet another um, gastric distress drug, the government should step in and say, if you are not going to use your patents to make these drugs, we are going to give um, the right to make them to somebody who will pursue them. Or we're going to um, exact tax penalties on you. This industry pays very little in taxes. Uh, they have, like, the highest tax breaks of any major industry. And, the, and I outline in my book the number of ways in which the government could force these companies to make drugs we actually need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it sounds like we really have an issue here of what is legal and what is ethical and, and somehow it seems like an awful lot of gets talked about about what's legal, but is what is legal ethical? And that, that seems to me to be a Not very, very big question here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, it's to the interest of corporations to confuse the two. I remember confusing um, the, the principal investigator for the polyhene study. This is one of the non, um, non-consensual research studies that I discussed in my book and that I alluded to earlier. Yes. Um, they were taking people who were accident victims and forcing them to have um, artificial blood infused into their veins without their knowledge, without telling them, without asking their permission. So I asked them, I said, is this right? You know, yeah. now, you're, yeah. now you're expanding this to the Research Outcomes Consortium, a much broader research initiative also, without asking people's permission. And I said, is this right? He said, well... Everything we do is legal. I said, yes, but is it right? But is it ethical? He said, well, mm-hmm. said, we're a country that goes by the law. I'm not, and I said, I'm not asking whether it's legal or not. I know it's legal, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I'm asking if it's right. He said, I better not answer that question. That seems to be the heart of the matter. Yeah. <laughs> are, there, are there some um, uh, groups that are now addressing this? There seem to be some yes. encouraging information about uh, pooling of resources, and I think there was something about gathering of Alzheimer's data that actually was posted online, so there couldn't be any patent. I thought exactly. that was pretty exciting. Yeah, remember I told you about Alan Edwards' work in Toronto? Mm-hmm. That sort of thing that they're doing, and that's, that's what I meant when I said there were these pockets of researchers who are going back to the old ways of collaboration mm-hmm. rather than being driven by a patent. And yes, it's very clever what they're doing. They're, and they're pooling their information. They're Posting it online so it can't be patented. In order to get a patent on something, it's got to be novel. Mm-hmm. Once you publicize it, it's no longer novel and exclusive. And if it goes into the public yeah. domain, you can't get a patent. So it's very clever what they're doing. And not only that, there are also other groups who are coming up with these new models of innovation. For example, advanced market directives. Getting medications to poor people in the developing world um, is something that has been very challenging, and yet you've got the Gates Foundation, Gavi, which is a global alliance for vaccine design, and other um, 
private medical philanthropic organizations, including Doctors Without Borders, and what they have done is they've partnered with governments of countries to come up with a guarantee. It's an advanced market commitment. Basically, together, they pull funds to guarantee the makers of drugs a profit if they make drugs for people in the developing world. Now, what's happened with this is very interesting because some pharmaceutical companies have joined these groups, and they've come up with, for example, um, malaria vaccines and pneumonia vaccines um, that address a really important killer in the developing world. And these vaccines cost $70 in the West, but they're making doses for only 50 cents each. Now, um, pharmaceutical companies who are participating in this, they've been taking credit for it recently. They've been saying, look what we're doing for the third world. We're developing these vaccines. Yes, they don't mention the fact that they're able to do this only because being paid by these other foundations and organizations. And in fact, the global um, Gavi, unfortunately, the Global Alliance now has almost a $3 billion shortfall. So the danger here is that if these companies be paid enough money, they will stop doing it. Now, that's what happened with the Florinidine against sleeping sickness. Um, they did indeed, which is a great thing, they did indeed contribute um, um, medication to the third world, but when they saw there's no profit in it, they pulled out after five years. The question is, will this be will this be sustainable? Will we be able to um, provide a consistent source of these medications to the third world? Mm -hmm. um, it's a definitely a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I think we have to work really hard to make sure that it is a step that we don't end up stepping backwards again. What about that? I think it was called the Pog Hollis model, uh, compensating companies in proportion to their products affected in ameliorating pressing health concerns and reducing disease. That sounded like another approach that sounded pretty interesting. Yeah, that's another great new model that I address in the book. It's another very promising model. What I really love about this one is the Health Impact Fund. Essentially, you've got the same general idea. You have, um, you compensate the companies so they will see the profit. They're not going to see the obscene profits they've seen in the past but they will see a profit. Instead of predicated on, predicating it on money paid by people in developed countries, in the West, in industrialized nations, instead of predicating on people in these countries paying the companies, we're predicating it on um, paying the company um, in proportion to the number of lives it saves. So instead of, for example, making a lot of money because you sell a drug um, to 100,000 um, people in the United States, then instead you sell it to 100,000 people throughout the world. And the beauty of this model is that every life is worth the same. Mm -hmm. Now you sell a drug in the United States, and it's worth much more to the companies than if you were able to sell the same drug in Sub-Saharan Africa, where you can only charge, say, 50 cents. Mm -hmm. Well, with the health impact model, every life is worth the same. It's the number of lives you save. It's the impact on health that a company is rewarded for. And that's a much more humane and ethical model. And I think that it's workable. So what Hollis and Pog have done is extremely important. So, so there are models out there, and there, there is some progress being made. Um, is there any chance that you will be writing your next book about some of these things that, that may be happening? I, I think if people knew um, what they could do and, and, and 
the actions that they could support. Um, I think I know people here in Maine are, are you know, there we're a lot of social activists that we we want to to support things that are are you know ethically uh, within within the bounds of of helping other people. Um, so, is there more research coming out on this, and are there more things we can follow about this? Okay, you've asked me about five questions. Let me yeah, take sorry. them in order. <laughs> okay, so great question. Let me know if I, if I forget any of them. Okay. Um, first thing is that, yes, these new models are tremendously exciting. As I outline them in the book, they all have the potential to work, but we have to remember these are very different models. Also, we have to be realistic. Why are some, not all, in fact, not many, but why are some pharmaceutical companies participating in this? Is it out of altruism? Sometimes they do act out of altruism. They have done that, and we should never forget that. So sometimes they have done this. But the reality is this old model isn't working for them anymore either. Their profits are falling. Their innovation is falling. Fewer and fewer drugs are being developed. They're making less money. They're no longer number one. They know they need a new market, and they understand the people of the developed world represent a vast new untapped market and they want in. So that's not a bad thing. I mean, if their needs have to with the needs of people in the developing world for better medicines, that's wonderful. But I think we have to be very sanguine about the fact that these are new, very new developments. We haven't seen um, any kind of sustained success yet. So we, you know, we can't exhale quite yet. Okay, well, I'm hopeful. I think it may work, but it hasn't worked yet, and I think we have to keep that in mind. And there has been... Um, precedents where these things have worked for a very short time and then sort of petered out. Well, I wish we had another couple hours to discuss this. Uh, Harriet Washington, your new book, uh, Deadly Monopolies, thank you so much for being with us today. And thanks to our station engineer today, uh, Matt Murphy. This has been Healthy Options. Please join us again next month. And until then, stay well and thanks for listening. Support for WERU health-related programming comes from the Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news and information, publishing three weekly newspapers, the Weekly Packet, Island Advantages, the Casting Patriot, the annual Bay Community Register, the Summer Seasonal Guide, and more. Also on the web at www.penobscotbaypress.com.